Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Scott Cluthy's Love Cafe. Join us for the best in relationships, family, health, well-being, spirituality, intuitive development, the future, and the past. All present in the Love Cafe. The Love Cafe call in line 347-308-8478. That's 347-308-8478. And now, Scott Cluthy's Love Cafe. Show this evening live on Blog Talk Radio across America, around the world, and who knows where else we're broadcasting to. Uh, it's positively incorrect with your host Scott Cluthy welcoming you. And as always, the call in line three four seven three zero eight eighty four seventy eight. Interested in UFOs? Interested in the possibility of UFOs? Interested in uh, any aspect of UFOs? Well, I have a man on this evening that's world renowned for his expertise in UFOs and so much more. It is Dr. Kevin Randall. Dr. Randall, welcome to Positively Incorrect. Oh, thank you very much. Glad to be here. A brand new book, and he is the the uh, creator of so many great books on UFOs and the unexplained phenomena. His latest, though, is called Crash, When UFOs Fall from the Sky, a history of famous incidents, conspiracies, and cover-ups. And Dr. Randall is a retired lieutenant colonel who's been investigating UFO sightings for more than 30 years. He's written dozens of books and magazine articles on the subject, lectured throughout the United States and Europe. He's considered an expert on those inside and outside the UFO field, and his opinions and assistance have been sought by government officials, members of the news media, other UFO researchers, and more. So, uh, Kevin, it's great to have you join us with this new book. What um, This book now, for our listeners out there, and I, I know they're our listeners out there are very interested in the UFO phenomena, maybe from personal experience or just from the awe-inspiring nature of it. But this book is a little different. It literally is a listing of crashes in particular. Why a book just on crashes? Blame Len Stringfield for crying out loud. Okay. Uh, Len, Len Stringfield was a researcher. He passed away in 1996. And in the UFO field, back in the 1950s, there was a story, a book called Behind the Flying Saucers, which talked of three crashes in the desert southwest. This book was thoroughly debunked by a reporter for the San Francisco Chronicle and True Magazine, showing that the whole thing was a hoax. And from that point on, nobody wanted to talk about UFO crashes. It just was a non-starter until Len Stringfield in 1978 at the MUFON convention in Ohio said, well, maybe it's time for us to take a look at this stuff. And he presented a paper on some of the information he'd been gathering about UFO crashes. And in that paper and in a subsequent what he called a crash retrieval status report, he had a list of 15 or 20 crashes. Well, I just picked that ball up and ran with it and expanded it to um, more and more crashes. Uh, On the Internet now I can find listings of up to 300, and I think it's time that we look at this phenomenon of UFO crashes and try to bring some sense to it because clearly there haven't been 300 crashes. Had there been 300, you and I would be having a different discussion right now. So uh, I I thought I would put together the best information on as many crashes as I could find so that we could eliminate a lot of them from the discussion and we could concentrate on those that might provide some valuable data. Yeah. You know, um, 
And the idea of something crashing, things being found or not found, uh, uh, little gray men found or not found, wrapped in aluminum foil or with the skin of a lizard, two eyes, three eyes, one ear, four ears, flying purple people eater. You know, it is so, so, so damned elusive. And, and, but we have so many books and accounts of other forms of alien encounter, right? We have visitations. We have books on people being lifted out of their beds at night. We have um, the, the sightings, of course, and, and as you say, the handheld shaky video that's on YouTube <laughs> of the paper of the paper uh, paper plates being floated in the backyard. Um, so, so within the, the the domain of UFOs, alien encounters, and so on, um, you would hope that in the and when you start to talk about crashes. You're talking about something that ha- something happened, therefore evidence. Physical but still, evidence. we find so few real records of some kind of evidence, and yet there is some, isn't there, Kevin? There is. There is documentation for it, which the skeptical community doesn't want to admit. But yes, there is some documentation. But but you can look at it from another point of view. Uh, in in June of 1947. Kenneth Arnold saw the objects out near Mount Rainier, Washington, which everybody who has spent more than 10 minutes in the UFO field knows about. From that point on, in 1940, June 24, 1947, people were speculating about what, this, what these were, what he, what he had seen. We were talk, talking about uh, government officials, uh, military officers, scientists, the guy on the street. Everybody was talking about it. Everybody wanted to know what it was. There were articles in the newspapers all over the place. Then on July 8th, we have a story that the Roswell Army Airfield captured a flying saucer in the Roswell region. They wanted fallen, and they, they got it. The next day, you get a story that says the Army and Navy moved today to suppress stories of flying saucers whizzing through the atmosphere. The question becomes, why did on July 9th did they care? And the answer is, on July 8th, they found the answer, and they didn't want to have to share it with our competitors in the world at the time. They didn't want to have to share it with our friends in the world, if we could decode the secrets of the flying saucer, we would take a great leap forward beyond our competitors. And they had a lot of unanswered questions that they needed to answer before they uh, released all that information. And from that point on, we've been we've been fighting the the suppression of information. Yeah. And we can point to the I mean various documents and everything that proves that. So when we get to Roswell, we have limited documentation, but there's some hints about it. But we see a real attempt by the military, the government, to suppress the information and hide it away. And and we need to move beyond that now. Uh, you know, it's funny because you talk about Roswell. Actually, one of the first things I want to talk about was backing up before Roswell to a beautiful place called Aztec, New Mexico. Aztec takes place after Roswell. Oh, it just says, oh it's March 48. I'm sorry. It's about a year later. But you have you have yeah. some very extensive information on the Aztec incident. Would you talk about that case? You have some cases in here which have a lot of documentation. Others, for various reasons, I guess you you list a lot of these is, um, just to make a note of them. But some of them have, have much greater depth in the information. Talk about the the Aztec New Mexico March twenty fifth nineteen forty eight incident. My feeling is that it's a hoax. I know there's a really? fellow, there's a fellow named Scott Ramsey who's producing a new book, which I haven't seen. I haven't seen his notes, 
that would suggest that Aztec was real. Uh, this event was part of the Behind the Flying Saucers book that came out in 1950 that was, was thoroughly debunked. From that point on, there have been multiple attempts to revitalize this story. Uh, after it was debunked in 1952 by, by J.P. Kane, uh, it was 1975 when it came up again. Robert Spencer Carr, who was a retired university professor, said that he'd talked to five people who had told him about a UFO crash, and it was, was Aztec. Within months, that story was debunked as well by a fellow named Mike McClellan. He said, well, the, the UFO crash at Aztec is a hoax. And we thought, well, that's the end of that. We can, we can now move on. Then Wendell Stevens and a fellow named William Steinman did a book called UFO Crash at Aztec. And they produced a lot of information, very little of it relevant, to, to the Aztec story, that something had fallen in Aztec, that the government had gotten it and, and taken away. In fact, uh, the, the, the story, and you see bits of this story appearing in other UFO crash stories, that the object sort of landed, not really crashed, but landed, but it didn't move. They didn't know how to open it up. There was a hole in one of the portholes, just a little hole, and they were probing through with, a, with some kind of a pole when they accidentally hit something and opened a hatch and they could get into the craft. And, of course, they removed the bodies of the uh, perfectly formed humans, but they were, they were uh, 40 inches tall. Dressed in 1890 garb, by the way, which well, I never <laughs> figured that one out. Not spacesuits, not jumpsuits, but this 1890 garb, and they all had perfect teeth, by the way. Did it, did it have boots on? I would imagine. But uh, I'm sorry, that so that story, that story is how to sink a story place. faster than a rock. Pardon me? How to sink a story faster than a rock? Were these time travelers then? Is that the Imagineering? I I'm not sure I'm not sure <laughs> I'm what's sorry. going on uh, with that, but that that was one of the points they made. Later on, they had they had spacesuits when we talked about this. So we get we get into the 1980s, and and Steinman and Wendell Stevens do a book called UFO Crash at Aztec, and they've talked to a number of people who say yes, it's all true, but it turns out that the people who were saying this hadn't been Aztec in, in 1947 or 1948. They'd been elsewhere. Those who were in the town in 1948 were saying, well, no, it's, we don't remember this. This event didn't take place. So after, the, if, after that book was, came out, we thought, well, that's the end of Aztec, and now we're, we're, we're coming up with uh, Scott Ramsey's book, and, and, and I haven't seen it, so I don't know what information he may be bringing to the table, but I hope it's more uh, – are, are, are better documented than, than what we've had in the past. But but to me, this story is a hoax based on the um, the hoax that began with Behind the Flying Saucers. There were two other flying saucer crashes in the southwest, one in Paradise Valley, Arizona, and the other one, I believe, was also in, in the desert southwest in Arizona. And, and so they're all kind of related, but we haven't ever found any really good evidence for the Aztec story, unlike we have for Roswell, or unlike we have for, uh, I'm thinking of Shag Harbor up in Canada, where there's a lot of very good documentation for it. You know, um, one of the stories you talk about, I think, uh, um, oh, now forgive me because there's so many in here, and some of them are, are really new to me, but it had to do with the actual fragments that were uh, uh, actually 
scientifically analyzed and found to be pure titanium. In fact, a titanium that couldn't be found on the Earth as far as its purity. Well, you're talking about the Yuba Tuba explosion in Brazil of 1957. Thank you. And so <laughs> that those fragments, Yuba Tuba to begin with, but anyway, it is summertime. Um, those fragments of, uh, of, of whatever it was that exploded, though, were scientifically analyzed. Yes, they were. But the problem is the chain of custody is broken. We have a we have a correspondent who said that he had seen the thing explode in the sky and he picked up the fragments from the beach near Ubatuba, Brazil, and he sent them to a, a columnist for a newspaper. But we don't know who who the guy is that picked up the pieces. We don't we we have the story in a letter, but we don't have the guy's name. So the chain of custody is broken at that point. The stuff was analyzed in Brazil, and what I find interesting is. Um, well, Dr. Alevio Fontes, who was an APRA representative in Brazil, had it analyzed scientifically in Brazil, and they said, they said, if you if you read the the reports, they said we found no contaminations in the magnesium. This was pure magnesium. The problem is, Fontes translated that or, or interpreted that to mean that there were no impurities in the metal, which is not quite the same thing. But the, the metal was sent to the United States, to the APRO headquarters, the Aerophenomena Research Organization, headed by Jim and Coral Lorenzen. They had it analyzed as well and found, found similar, similar results. But then we lose track of the fragments again, and it's after, it's after 1986 that they reappear, and, and Peter Sturrock, who was doing his investigation, had them analyzed so when, when all is said and done with Yuba Tuba, we've got some very interesting scientific analysis of the material. There is no explanation where the guy in Brazil got magnesium of the purity that he got. And we're left with a case that is the, the very definition of unidentified. Right, exactly. We just really don't know. Yeah. You have a, there's a big gap, it seems to me, and maybe it's just me, from, let's say, the late 1800s, early 1900s, and then suddenly sort of an explosion of crashes you you document starting in the uh the mid forties. Starting with the ghost rockets from Sweden. Yeah, so what what's the deal with that fifty year gap? Uh any ideas? Well I, part of the part of the problem is uh from, from eighteen ninety seven when we were talking about the airship to the point we get through World War Two, there's a lot of other stuff going on. And it's once we get beyond World War II and we start seeing these unidentified things in the sky. And I really should take a step back because um, uh, Keith Chester did a book about the Foo Fighters, which is True. the objects that, that people had seen, or our, our flyers had seen during the Second World War. Right. And, and thought they might be, depending on the theater they were in, might be German or they might be Japanese. The, the Japanese and the Germans thought they might be ours. Of course. And when the war was over, everybody said, that's not ours. We don't know what the hell Scratching it is. Scratching their heads. And so, uh, you know, the modern era really kind of begins then. We don't really see anything happening until we get the ghost rockets and there's, falling, there's things falling out of the sky. We don't have a lot of information about that. But, but that might be something similar to what's going on. Then we move to 1947 when... Arnold sees the thing, and then we start seeing a lot of, of, of stories about UFOs around. And once you get that, people start talking about the crashes. Now, the majority of the crashes, I believe, to be misidentifications or hoaxes, 
but there's a core of very solid information and very good information that we need to take a look at. We need to eliminate the stuff that doesn't help us and uh, look at the stuff that, that we have some very good testimony about and some good documentation about. Well, and you, and you mentioned that there are really, you could have added hundreds of other crashes to this book. Uh, and uh, I, I guess I could say, why didn't you make it twice as big? The publisher said no. Oh, that, that would be a good reason. <laughs> in fact, I did a book. I did a book uh, about ten years ago called the Roswell Encyclopedia, and I had to take out information enough uh, enough stuff that it would have made another whole book. <laughs> no, I, I had I had a book about two hundred and fifty thousand words, and they said no. Well, we'll do about a, we'll do about a hundred thousand, hundred and ten thousand, but but you're way to take some stuff out. Yeah, that, that, that's just too much information, Kevin. Yeah. Um, you know, which also leads me to to look at uh, where we are in our culture. You know, I mean, yeah, I've been doing this kind of radio for thirty years, and believe me, I did a lot of shows on UFOs, contactees, abductions, and all that in the seventies and in the eighties and even into the nineties. But it's really dropped off the plate. And and uh, what are your thoughts about that? Is it not being reported? Is it just not that strange a phenomenon? Have we moved on to calling past life experiences? Carl, Carl Flock and I discussed this a number of times and said that we had some very robust cases in the 1940s, 1950s, 1960s. I mean, some very interesting stuff, a lot of stuff going on. And you know, I'm thinking Lubbock Lights here. I'm, I'm thinking that, you know, the Roswell case that, that, that explodes all over the place. Uh, the, the sightings over Washington, D.C. in 1952, which generated... Right what I think of of, of is my favorite headline ever in a newspaper, the Cedar Rapids Gazette, has a banner headline that says, Saucers Swarm Over Capital. (laughs) And I'm thinking, boy, if that isn't a a, a headline out of a science fiction movie, I don't know what is. (laughs) So we have these very robust sightings. And we move out of uh, about 1973, and we don't get those robust sightings anymore. We don't get the same kind of uh, information. We don't have the same sort of drama going on after that point. Yeah, there's some interesting things that happened, and, and we can point to the Phoenix Lights in 1997. We can talk about the Belgian Triangle in, um, I think, 1989. We can talk about the Stevensville sightings. So there's some, some sightings going on, but nothing with the same robust nature. It's almost like the death of vaudeville. Something like that, and, I, and I'm not sure exactly what it is. I know that the, the interest in UFOs is cyclic. And that the cycle the cycle petered out around 1997, and it's just coming back now. But but we just we don't see the same sort of uh, robust sightings that we have. And, and you know, Carl and I thought, well, maybe maybe they were here in the 40s and the 50s, like scientists. They gathered all the information and data they could. They took it home, and they're now analyzing it before they come back for their follow-on investigations. Uh, yeah, I just I don't know what I don't know what the reason is. I know we get periodically we get. On the radio, the television, we get some very uh, we get some very intense stories. But for the most part, it's just not the way it had been in the past. No, it's not. It's not. And I wonder also, um, you know, we've got 2012 coming, so I, I suppose there'll probably be an upsurge in God knows what people are saying or, or thinking or feeling. But um, you know, when we look at the terrain of the world today, we've got a lot of really, really gritty magnitude 10 problems going on from you know, the, the the collapse of the car companies, Fannie Mae, the financial industry, and now we're having polluting the Gulf of Mexico, 45 miles from me, is being turned into a bunch of swamp gas. And and so uh, I wonder also if, if the nature of 
the reality of the concerns in the world pulls people away from, you know, not that the events don't happen, but the, sort of the shrug of the shoulders of, of things that might in the past been a point of uh, rabid phenomena and investigation. Well, I think one of the other things is not only that, that there is uh, 25 years ago, 30 years ago, you had three TV networks, and maybe, maybe depending on where you lived, an independent state TV station or two. Uh, you know, you're, you're, you had to go to the theater to see a movie or wait for it to show up on TV and be cut apart in commercials. Yes. And in today's environment, um, I can communicate with people around the world instantaneously uh, through my computer. I can make long-distance phone calls for free. Uh, I have all the entertainment options I could possibly want on my computer, and if I get bored with that, I've got 9,000 TV channels. Uh, Often most of them are showing law and order, but that's okay. So I I think that may be part of the problem, that our attention is so fragmented by all the opportunities that we have to entertain ourselves that, that some of the stuff gets lost in the shuffle. And, and as you say, some, we, we're facing some very serious problems. But what really bothers me is we're involved in two wars, and you can watch the evening news and not hear a word about it. You can look at your newspaper and go through it days on end and not hear a word about what's happening in Iraq or Afghanistan, unless, of course, the American army screws up somehow and then everybody's all up in arms. But but I think I think it's just... The landscape of the of the of society has changed so radically because of because of the internet and because of satellite TV and because of cable TV and and all the things that we can do today that we couldn't. I mean, you go back far enough, and and the big deal was to um, if you were rich enough, you could have a, a home theater with a movie projector and you could get copies of the movies. And today, uh, I can go to the store and buy a movie for. Two or three bucks, depending on what it is, the whole thing right there. It's just incredible. So yeah, yeah, and 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 we just had the anniversary of the the longest running war in our history. And, and but it was just a footnote on TV. You know, I mean, you think about that. You know, it used to be you'd study history, and you'd read about these the longest war in history in American history. That just went by like a blip. It, it was a two-minute mention in, in the midst of everything else. And the, I think the problem with that is most people aren't affected by it. Unless you are deployed yourself or a family member is deployed or a neighbor is deployed, you just don't think about that. Hmm. And and so that can go on without without anything being discussed about it. So, uh, you know, that, that may be why... Some of the UFO stuff doesn't get talked about as as it once did. But I also think the problem is we just don't get the same kind of robust sightings. And, and, and one of the problems may be that we're now more sophisticated and things that used to fool us don't, so we don't talk about those. But on the, other, the flip side of that, I noticed by going through um, on, on my blog there is a um, video bar which – for meteors, and I'd, I'd put the bar up there, and you can type in what you would like to show on this video bar. And I typed in meteors, meteorites, meteor falls, not realizing that meteor falls actually took it to sometimes to Pokemon stuff. <laughs> but there's a, a compila- compilation of of meteor falls. It's a three-minute, 19-minute group of meteors 
very bright meteors as they break up, and it's and it's incredible. And what struck me about this is how often it looks like a lighted cockpit and windows of a craft as it's coming down. And if you get this out of the corner of your eye or you just see it for a split second, you've got the impression of some kind of a cigar-shaped craft, craft maybe coming down. Yeah. And I think, I think that we can explain some UFO crashes with that. There is also one from Needles, California, that George Knapp investigated. He was, an, he, was he is an investigative reporter for um, a Las Vegas TV station, and this thing fell near Needles, California, and he was out there right away interviewing the witnesses. I mean, clearly something fell, and what disturbed him was within 30 minutes, maybe 20 minutes, there were six helicopters right there picking the thing up at 3 o'clock in the morning, which suggested to, to George Knapp and suggests to me that it was some kind of, a, of an experiment on our part that got away because they chased it down that quick as opposed to something that might have been alien and fell that they got to that, that quick. But, but they were right there. They picked it up. And had there not been a couple of people awake at that time to see this, we would have had no clue that something like that happened. Yeah, I- you know, oh, by the way, listeners, it is Positively Incorrect, your host, Scott Cluthy, on this Thursday evening. We are live with my very special guest, Dr. Kevin Randall. His latest book is Crash, When UFOs Fall from the Sky, a History of Famous Incidents, Conspiracies, and Cover-Ups. And, you know, we love hearing from you. Our call-in line is 347-308-8478. And, Kevin, I'd like you to talk about one case that you quite you quite point blank say that this is a case of a cover-up and i have no doubt this was an alien uh, crash a craft from another world that's out in las vegas nevada uh, in 1962 july 18th this is you know this is one where you you feel very strongly that not only was the air force in the cover-up this was an alien craft and, and and we're not told the truth about it how many cases like that do you feel there really are that you honestly feel this is uh, an alien crash has landed and we're just being we're just not told the truth just a handful probably five or six but that's all it takes isn't it it only takes one yeah uh roswell of course i'm thinking also as you mentioned las vegas in 1962 kecksburg in 1965 uh ubatuba that you mentioned earlier is very interesting but there's you know we we talked about the trouble with that one and then there's shag harbor in canada in 1967 which uh, Don Ledger and Chris Stiles have done a Herculean task in, in investigating the case and coming across with lots and lots of uh, documentation that the Canadian government would have preferred they didn't have. So there's just, there's just a handful. The, the, the thing that was done with the Las Vegas uh, case was they broke it into two parts. And there was a part that takes place in Utah, and the thing was seen to land. It shut off the lights in a town. Um, and, and I, I must have talked to two or three dozen witnesses in the area. One guy was uh, he flew over the top of his truck. It, it stalled the engine. It dimmed the lights, scared him to death. Until it, and when it went away, the truck started operating again, made a looping turn around Reno, Nevada, headed back toward Las Vegas, and was seen to explode in the sky, the Las Vegas sky. And a newspaper headline the next morning says, Brilliant Red Explosion Flares in Las Vegas Sky. But what the Air Force did, they broke it into two, the case into two parts. They did the Utah case um, in like local time, and the Las Vegas end of the case in Zulu time. And so what you had was a seven-hour difference, 
and it looked like it was events that took place on two different days, when in fact that they took place sixty minutes apart. And that was a deliberate, you feel, a deliberate effort on the Air Force. Yeah, they also they also said uh, some fellow wrote in, and, I, and this is in the doc, this is documented. I've got this in the files. Uh, wrote in, and he said, were fighters scrambled for this event uh, in April of 1962? And the Air Force wrote back, said, no fighters were scrambled. In the case file, I found that four fighters were scrambled off Luke Air Force Base in Phoenix. So clearly fighters were scrambled. There's a, there was a general who had taken off from uh, Colorado Springs, uh, Cheyenne Mountain area, saw the thing in the sky and reported it to the command post. There were there was a, a pilot out of uh, Hill Air Force Base in Utah who saw the thing below him and talked about what it looked like below him. There's there's literally literally a um, couple of hundred witnesses scattered through Utah and Nevada, parts of Colorado who who talked about this thing. So it's a very well documented case from the Air Force investigation, but it also it also shows you how the government was trying to answer the question. They 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 were under under the the working assumption was there are no UFOs, therefore everything is explainable. So you must explain everything, regardless of how ludicrous the explain, explanation may, may be. And when you talk about Project Blue Book, they say, well, we studied this for um, 22 years. We investigated some 12,000 cases. We were only un- unable to explain 700 of them. But the truth of the matter is there are 4,000, more than 4,000 cases listed as insufficient data for scientific analysis, which means they labeled it, but they didn't explain it. So yeah, exactly. when you look at all of that stuff, it turns out about half the cases in the Project Blue Book files, the Air Force investigation, aren't really explained. Do you, um, uh, Kevin Randall, do you believe that the, uh, the government actually has had contact with alien intelligence? No. I think that the, the, the only contact they have had is picking up the debris like in Roswell, that there has been no interaction between our government and the aliens, whoever they might be. I know there's a lot of, there's a lot of information out there that suggests that, but I just, I've, I'm not convinced by that evidence. Right. We're, we're, we're concerned. They, they are concerned witnesses just like us. They yes. just happen to have the evidence. Yes, yes. And they're very good at tracking these things, aren't they? Do you think people would be surprised at how how uh, readily the government and agencies can track movement in the atmosphere? You know I, what I'm saying? They, they're there. They I should. would think that in today's environment where I can go on Google Earth and and find my house, uh, you know, and see if if my car's in the driveway or not, um, that I don't think I don't think people who are computer literate, and I mean really computer literate and use Google Earth and all those sorts of things, uh, would be overly surprised at how much, how closely they could track these things. I think some of the older generation, of which I guess you and I belong, that's us, uh, would be, would be, could be surprised by this. But I mean their ability to respond and be on the scene so quickly. Well, I think, I think the one, the one, exp- the, the one case out in Needles, California, I think the explanation of that is not that, that there was something alien involved, but there was something, some kind of an experiment that got away from them. Mm-hmm. Uh, especially when you look at the maps, uh, Needles isn't all that far from Area 51, where I believe yes. we're looking at, we're, we're, we're studying the next generation of military aircraft. Yes. So, um, when we look at, when we look at the response at Roswell, it, it was very, slipshod 
and 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 not well coordinated. But I think they learned their lessons there so that um, they were prepared for anything else that would happen. And I think if you look at what Ed Ruppelt wrote, and Ed Ruppelt was the chief of Project Blue Book at one time, and some of the stuff going on in the summer of 1947, it was clear they were very concerned with the UFO phenomenon. They didn't know what it meant, but as the time uh, passed and they realized the invasion fleet wasn't showing up and that the things weren't um, attempting to make contact and they weren't landing in big open areas uh, I mean, in, in the cities where a lot of people could see them. They were, in fact, if they landed, it was out in the country somewhere, that they took the tack that we can, we can suppress this information. The aliens can always land tomorrow in the uh, you know, front yard of the White House or... Uh, uh, Probably better at the World Cup right now. I, I think those horns would annoy them. Well, they might draw them, actually. <laughs> the signal, the the humans are attacking us. It's time to make our move. Those horns are really annoying. They're yeah. very annoying. And I'm glad that they're in South Africa. Yeah, it's a long way away. <laughs> uh, do you think that, uh, is there going to be a time where the truth about Roswell is actually revealed? I mean, the real truth? I suspect. I, I know people are talking about disclosure and that we can force disclosure. I don't think we're ever going to force it. I think what's going to happen is the aliens are going to reveal themselves and then all bets are off. They say, yeah, we know about Roswell. we got this stuff right here. Yeah. Oh, yeah, uh, sure. Yeah, but but um, I I just don't see that there seems to be no motivation for the government to real, reveal this information. And people say to me, well, does, does, does President Obama know it? And I say no, because he's got a lot of other things to deal with. You know, he's not going to be playing with the flying saucer stuff because that <laughs> is, well, it's not a priority right now. The priority is dealing with the oil. Yeah. The priority is dealing with some of these other problems that are, are at the forefront, and, and flying saucers right now aren't there. If something happens tomorrow that that requires it, well, then he'll he'll know all that he needs to know about that. Yeah, we'll bring it forward. Yeah, my special guest this evening here on Positively Incorrect, your host, Scott Cluthy, live on a Thursday evening. It's Dr. Kevin Randall, his new book, Crash, When UFOs Fall from the Sky, A History of Famous Incidents, Conspiracies, and Cover-Ups. They're all in here. And also he has a tremendous uh, blog, actually, uh, I believe is it Kevin Randall. Uh, yes, KevinRandall.blogspot.com. And for people who don't know how to spell my last name, it's it's spelled like candle only with an R. That's right. And and if you don't, and if you and if that's too complicated, and sometimes I'm I can't even get it spelled right. Uh, just type in a different perspective UFO to your search engine, and the first thing that pops up ought to be a, a link to the blog. This is Scott Cluthy. We'll be right back with more from the Love Cafe. Don't forget our call in line 347-308-8478. And visit the Love Cafe on Facebook. Just look for Scott Cluthy's Love Cafe. We'll be right back. Hi, Scott Cluthy, host and producer of Love Cafe Radio and Love Cafe Video and other media as well. Glad you're listening tonight. Have you ever thought about hosting your own radio show? Well, as a graduate of Coach University and a professional broadcaster over 30 years, I can guide you to your dreams of having your own talk show that sounds professional and is professional. 
Every aspect of your show, from the scripting to the concept to the execution, you'll be a professional in broadcasting after working with me, either on a monthly basis for long-term or short-term. To increase or improve your abilities as a broadcaster and do better programming, attract a larger audience, and even more quality guests because of the quality and professionalism of your broadcasting. I'd like to help you. Give me a call, 832-846-5270, or write to me at scott at lovecafehouston.com. And let's have a conversation about you becoming the potential radio star that's there within you today. Thanks. Welcome back to the Love Cafe with Scott Cluthy. Our call in line, 347 308 8478 for tonight's guest. Glad to have you in the Love Cafe. Now, Scott Cluthy and the Love Cafe. Many other great guests as well. Tonight, another great guest. It is uh, Dr. Kevin Randall. Uh, my guest, his new book is Crash When UFOs Fall from the Sky A History of Famous Incidents, Conspiracies, and Cover Ups. And uh, Dr. Randall, welcome back to the show. Well, thank you. Absolutely. You know, uh, we were talking about uh, the evidence and coming forward with it and uh, uh, whether or, or what circumstances might bring that forward. Uh, I was also interested, I was reading your blog today, and I was, I was rather humorous but also a little bit sad. You were talking about how today, uh, being a, a UFO geezer, if you will, about how you feel that the investigative and the journalistic aspect of young people is not the same. And, well, you know, the truth is, Kevin, that's really reflected in the news media as well, though, isn't it? Certainly. Uh, what I was responding to is a number of calls for we geezers to get out of the way and let the, the youngsters uh, move forward because we hadn't solved the problem of what UFOs are. And the answer <laughs> is, well, actually, we have solved it. You just won't listen to us. But And, and it's not to say that, that the youngsters wouldn't be able to uh, move forward. But before you began uh, research in a scientific arena, you, you always do a literature search, which is see what has gone on before you so you don't have to do the same stuff over and over again. And, and unfortunately, in the UFO field, that's what happens. Everything recycles every five or seven years, and we end up having to uh, drive the stake through the heart of something that we thought had been eliminated a long time ago. And, and, and your discussion or, or bringing up Aztec is the perfect example uh, it should have been dead in 1952. It keeps resurfacing, and now we. And, you know, I, I don't mean to malign Scott Ramsey because I don't know what the information he has, and I'm waiting patiently to see it. But but he's going to revitalize the Aztec case, and here's something that I thought was gone long time ago. Right. So too often in you know uh, the youngsters come come forward with a great deal of enthusiasm, but oftentimes they don't look to see what the past has been. So they can move forward from that point, build on what we've done, and move forward rather than revisit all these old things that uh, we've moved beyond. Do you feel that the, this advent of being able to uh, shoot live video on the streets and upload it to YouTube and it travels around the world and becomes viral and 18 million people see it, this instantaneous media mecca that we're living in also, though, uh, cause a dissipation in authenticity and also because of the influx of all this media and so much now sort of taken for granted films with aliens in them and all these life forms and all these fantastic storylines, 
the people have been inculcated to a degree that, uh, you know, they sort of just accept it that that's real. Oh, that's there. Oh, of course it is, but aren't really willing to do the legwork to discover, in fact, if their own belief is just that and not based on a truth. Well, the problem that I see is is the ability of so many people to uh, edit digitally on yes. the computers and produce something that looks very, very credible that that is faked. And there's, and there's almost virtually no way of separating the fact from the fiction when we get into that stuff. And I know that there's some UFO researchers who suggested, well, we'll just ignore the video stuff because we cannot... Uh, validate it unless of, uh, unless we do a lot of legwork. You've got to talk to the people who are involved. Were there other witnesses? Can you discern anything else from uh, from the video or or the the situation as it developed? A lot of legwork has to be done. So, and and the ability to create such great images is so simple in today's environment that some of these researchers are suggesting, well, you look at the pictures in the past or you look at the film film that was made in the past as uh, uh, better evidence than the digitally recorded stuff of today's environment. Hmm. That's interesting. But, you know, there the weren't as many, and, and, uh, and, and, and the, the scrutiny and analysis of photographs and so on was pretty extensive back then. Well, the, problem, the problem was about 99% of the photographs were taken by teenage boys, and 99% of those were hoaxes. Right. And as we move as we moved out of the fifties and the sixties when we were getting these pictures and the and the teenagers became older, became adults, they would own up, you know, well, oh, I faked that thing. Oh not, yeah, that was easy. Yeah. yeah, that was that was a lot of fun. And and gee, if you think about the time when you were a teenager, if you can think back that far <laughs> uh, you were probably involved in some shenanigans as well. Right. So it's it's I mean I'm not it's not a it's not condemning the teenagers for faking the photos. And, and 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 we should applaud them for now telling us that those things were um, that those things were fake, so we can remove them, make them footnotes. But it's not just teenagers. It, 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 seriously, there's there's an awful lot of photographs that were were made by by adults to propel themselves into the the spotlight. Uh, well, I was watching some guy yesterday who was talking about his attack of Bigfoot, and I watched him, and I watched his body language. And I swear to God, most of the time it looked to me like his eyes were saying, "You getting me? You getting me? You see me?" I'm like this is ridiculous. I did I did a, um, a workshop at a UFO at a, a, a UFO uh, lecture a con- convention type thing, and I did I did I did something on body language, and I showed a videotape of a fellow who I believe was lying, and I and I would point out and says okay see he's telling you the story, but notice he's now shaking his head slightly. He's telling you he's lying to you, <laughs> and I said does anybody read body language anymore to Right this stuff out, and I think too often that that I mean that's a that's another subtle skill that that people have have lost. So that's so true. I'm going to see if uh, our listener online, Deanna, has a question for you. She's always a very intelligent woman, always thinking about our ideas. And Deanna, hi, are you there? Yes, I am. Good evening. How are you, Scott? And very good. I love uh, this subject. Yeah, my guest, the Dr. Kevin I, Randall. Do you have a question or comment for Dr. Randall? Comment a few, not star geezers, star gazer. I'm sorry, not not uh, UFO geezers, but UFO gazers. Gazers, thank you. Also, 
Ever wonder why New Mexico is called the land of enchantment? Um, I love Charles Berlitz, and from his books I started reading Valet and Ivan Sanderson with the other submersible ones, and um, Hynek, and we lost a lot of the valid researchers, and I think it's really difficult not only to research it, but to be able to convey the idea. A lot of people may have seen this, but are not eloquent enough to put it into the right words that cause people to reflect upon it. The last book I'm reading was published about 14 years ago. I'm still not finished because I read so many other things at the same time. I really liked it. Michael Kraft was called Alien Impact. Did you ever read that, Mr. Randall, Dr. Randolph? Randolph? Uh, Jenny uh, Randolph is someone else. There's, there's, um, the last time I looked, there was like 4,500 to 5,000 UFO books that have been published over the last 50 years. Yeah. So I've missed a few. <laughs> is that right? And, and that would be one that I missed. Um, Alien Impact. Alien Impact. Now, Alien Impact, it's really good. I bought it about two, three years ago. I'm also trying to get the collection by Richard Dolan. But my very favorite of all is a movie producer that sent a lot of us on this quest. And uh, there's two of them, Spielberg and Lucas. And I'm really grateful to them because they opened up to the masses the possibility that this could be. Yeah, there's no doubt about that. Close encounters. You know, uh, there was a funny thing. Even in uh, characterizing the role of uh, Jacques Vallée in the Close Encounters, the funny thing was that this French director who was uber-known, Francois Truffaut, and who never started an American movie, was a person who played the character, and it gave it a lot of credence. Yeah, he was wonderful in that film. He had very authentic, and of course, being a great film director, he also understood the role of uh, of immersing yourself in the character on screen. He did a great job. You're right. And if you knew where to look, you would have seen J. Allen Hynek in that film as well. Really? Yes. I think I did. I think I did because I've watched it many times. But in the uh, the big I think was I think Truffaut was there because he believed in it, not for the money. Well, I'd have to agree with that. He didn't need the money to be in the movie, that's for sure. Um, and and Heineck, was he with the beard with this? Yes, and when the the big landing scene, um, he's there's a shot of him uh, smoking his pipe. That's right. Yeah. Isn't that wonderful, the way that art reflects life? <laughs> well, the it's funny, but about sharing those thoughts. Uh, one last comment, if I may. Please. The man that played the president or whomever, for some reason, reminded me of Bill Clinton. <laughs> Doesn't look exactly like him, but you know, there is uh, an identification process that you tag someone, tall, white-haired, etc., etc. I think that movie holds a lot of clues. It may be a foolish thought, but I really think it. Well, thank you, Deanna. I appreciate your your comments. They're very thoughtful, actually. Thanks for being out there listening tonight, too. 
thank you for bringing Dr. Randall and people that are very interesting from whom we can learn. Always a pleasure. All right. Good night. Well, yeah, I'll put you back on hold, absolutely. One of our listeners who listens online, and uh, another way you can access Blog Talk Radio, actually, is through the phone itself. You don't have to have a computer to listen. She brings up some interesting points about the role of media in the archetypes buried within our consciousness. Uh, Kevin, is that good or bad? Uh, it it de- it depends, I guess, is the the best way to go with that one. If you look at Close Encounters, they they start with the five Avenger torpedo bombers that disappeared in the Bermuda Triangle, and they're right. suddenly there in in the Mexican desert. If you if you study the Bermuda Triangle, you you learn that there probably is nothing that mysterious going on there. Um, there was a wonderful book, uh, The Bermuda Triangle Solve. What a, what a clever name by uh, Lawrence <laughs> Kooch, who went through these things very, very carefully and checked the, the original sources and was able to uh, solve many of the, of the alleged disappearances. And when I was in the Air Force Reserve, I was with the 928th Tactical Airlift Group, and our parent organization, the 440th Tactical Airlift Wing, had lost an airplane in the Bermuda Triangle. And so I had an opportunity uh, to, to speak with the people who were there when it happened and, and got a different perspective than you would get in the, in the books about this sort of thing. That uh, uh, the, the airplane apparently crashed. They actually found wreckage, and the, one of the guys says, would you like to see some of it because we still have it? So I got to go out to the hangar and look at some of the, the wreckage of, uh, that they had recovered from this airplane that supposedly disappeared without a trace. <laughs> so you've got to look at all of this sort of thing to um, understand what's going on. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, my guest is uh, Dr. Kevin Randall. His new book is Crash, When UFOs Fall from the Sky, A History of Famous Incidents, Conspiracies, and Covers-Ups. And uh, would you talk about one last uh, incident, and I think you – you mentioned it as being one of the more uh, evidence-prone that you feel with an authentic uh, uh, alien, I guess an alien craft, would you say? Yes. Out in uh, Kecksburg, Pennsylvania, and that was in 1965 that as well. Was, and and Stan Gordon has done the lion's share of the work there. Clearly something fell. Clearly something was retrieved. Clearly something was taken out of the Air- Kecksburg area on a truck. Uh at one point, the government was saying, well, it was part of the reentry of the Cosmos 96 uh, satellite that had uh, been launched by the Soviet Union sometime earlier and had fallen back to Earth. They were, it was a probe to go to Venus, and it never made it. But that, that was documented coming down 13 hours before anything was seen at Kecksburg. There is solid testimony and documentation that military people were sent in. Uh, there were... Uh, the, the state police, Pennsylvania state police, were involved. There were newsmen who were on the scene talking about it. Uh, the, the military, the government, got there very quickly and removed something from that area uh, on the night of December 9, uh, 1965. So it's a it's a very interesting case. Uh, Leslie Keene, uh, working with Stan Gordon and some other people, actually sued NASA about this uh, event. And got some additional documentation. And one of the things you find out is NASA's lost an awful lot of documentation. Mm-hmm. Uh, they just didn't pay close attention to where they're filing stuff. But their um, 
their research has has provided some interesting documentation as well, and 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 it's kind of outlined in the book. And I point you toward Leslie Keen. I point you toward Stan Gordon for more information. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, what would you hope that people, obviously those who are are highly interested in UFOs, will want to see your 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 compounding of what you consider uh, this this history of famous incidents, conspiracies, and cover-ups, uh, but also some of the documentation historically is, impo- is interesting to see when this really became a phenomena of, of, uh, of interest and, and also of interest to local authorities. What would you hope people would gain from picking up a crash when UFOs fall from the sky, Kevin? I would like them to bring a, clinic, a critical eye to the whole subject of UFOs, and that's what I attempted to do in the book, bring a critical eye to it, look at the evidence, and decide whether or not this is something that is credible, this is something that I can believe because of the documentation, because of the testimony, or this is something that's really far out and they haven't, they haven't proven it uh, to my satisfaction. So I'm looking to provide as much information about the various events as I possibly can so that uh, people people can then make some kind of an intelligent, rational decision about the validity of a specific case. I try to present all the information, not just argue one point of view, but bring all the information out so that the the reader can decide for him or herself what is is valid and what is not. And, you know, it just occurred to me, what's the American and the worldwide opinion on aliens and UFO encounters today versus 10 years ago? Has it gone up or gone down, or where are we as a nation? I think, based on the, the surveys I've seen, it's been pretty steady. There's there's always been an uh, around 50% of the people, based on the poll, that believe that there has been alien visitation. And and so we're kind of holding steady there. It Depending on the time of the year, depending on... When it was done, there's been there's been uh, ups and downs in in that. Yeah, the the, the website is kevinrandall.blogspot.com. That's right, right? Yes. And yes. the books can be ordered there. You can find out all about that. You can get involved with it. You can enroll and sign up and all that good stuff, and really have an ongoing conspiracy with Kevin Randall <laughs> for Doctor Randall to amuse himself while he. Plays with our minds as the great puppet master he is, right? <laughs> yeah. Okay, sure, why not? Sure, I'll take that one on. That's another tag <laughs> for my resume. Anyway, the book is Crash, When UFOs Fall from the Sky. I know you've got another interview coming up. I promise I'll let you off at five till, but I'm a, a famous liar on the radio. <laughs> oh, great. Nice. So, uh, but uh, you've been wonderful, and it's been very entertaining, and thank you for joining us on Positively Incorrect. Oh, I, lo- I loved it. I loved it. It was a great deal of fun. That's good. So you'll remember next time you'll return my phone calls. I always return your phone calls. I'm just kidding. Okay, then. <laughs> All right, Kevin, it was great to have you. We'll have you back again. And go out and find the new book, Crash. And you go ahead and go on to another interview, and I'll keep talking to my listeners. Okay, thank you. All right, thanks for being here. Thanks for joining me in the Love Cafe community. Don't forget, join us on Facebook at Scott Cluthy's Love Cafe. And sign up for the newsletter. Till next time. This is Scott Cluthy. Thanks again for stopping by the Love Cafe.